Um, it is now time for First Minister's questions, and I call Douglas Ross. Thank you, Presiding Officer. More than three and a half years ago, maternity services in Murray were downgraded after a similar downgrade in Caithness Hospital. It means that now hundreds of women will have to travel long distances, often in labour, to give birth or to receive treatment at Raigmore in Inverness. Hamza Youssef stood in this chamber on the 7th of December, responding to the independent review into maternity services in Murray, and told me that he, and I quote, absolutely believe that there is capacity in place to deal with the additional women who may have to go to Raigmore. But that confidence isn't shared by more than a dozen clinical experts who have written to the Health Secretary about the report. They said the findings were unworkable and unsafe. They wrote privately to the Health Secretary, but when he didn't respond to them, they went public. So what does the First Minister say to mums-to-be and families who are in fear during their pregnancy about how far away help and support will be? And since her Health Secretary hasn't responded to the clinicians on the front line, will she address their concerns about these proposals? First Minister. Officer, before I come to that extremely important question, can I just take the opportunity to uh, acknowledge uh, that today, of course, is Holocaust Memorial Day, uh, an opportunity to remember all those murdered in genocides in the Holocaust, of course, but more recently in Rwanda, Darfur and Bosnia, uh, and an opportunity for us to rededicate ourselves to resisting the hatred and prejudice that drives such atrocities. Uh, whatever opinions or points of view might divide us, we should never forget that our bonds of common humanity are stronger and must always unite us. Presiding officer, let me turn to the important question. On all of these questions, let me say, and I hope it is a point uh, Douglas Ross will accept, that the safety of pregnant women, of mothers and babies is the absolute uh, paramount imperative of the government, and I know it is uh, two of clinicians working on the front line. Uh, obviously, a report uh, into the issues of uh, consultant-led maternity services uh, at Dr Gray's and uh, the, the implications for Raigmore uh, was commissioned. Uh, that report is thorough and substantial. Um, the Cabinet Secretary has uh, met with staff, the boards uh, and local people, I think, uh, before Christmas, and the Scottish Government is considering all of the recommendations uh, very, very carefully. Uh, it is important that we get this right. It is absolutely important that we recognise the desire, uh, understandable uh, and important desire of women to give birth as close to home as possible. But it is also really important uh, that we don't lose sight uh, of the issues of patient safety. And I can give an assurance uh, to the Chamber, but more importantly to local people, that all of these issues will be subject to the most serious and careful consideration. Douglas Ross. Can I echo the words of the First Minister about Holocaust Memorial Day? And my colleague Jackson Carlow, immediately after First Minister's questions, will lead a member's debate, and I'm certain every member will stay in the Chamber for such uh, an important debate. But the future of maternity services at Dr Gray's Hospital has consequences for mothers all over the North East and the Highlands. This has impacted my own family, but it's caused far greater problems for many others. Here's one example from the recent review into maternity services. And these are the words of a mum. I had been told that if I had a bleed before giving birth, the chances were slim that I would survive, and consequently, neither would my baby. I spent months in constant fear that I would bleed. Then the worst happened, and I started bleeding at home. 
I was transferred initially to Dr Gray's, then to Aberdeen in a blue light ambulance. The bleeding did initially stop, and I was told my baby had a heartbeat. But when the bleeding started again, on the way to Aberdeen, I was told the heartbeat had gone. I therefore thought my baby was dead, and it was likely I was next. First Minister, this is going to happen to more and more women the longer this is allowed to go on. When doctors and midwives are saying the options on the table won't work, what is the First Minister and her government going to do about it? And why are they not responding to these medical experts? First Minister. Can I understand uh, the personal, firstly acknowledge the personal experience uh, here? Um, we all, uh, not all, but many of us, myself included, have personal experiences um, around baby loss at different stages, and therefore I absolutely understand the emotion, the sensitivity and the seriousness of these issues. Uh, the Scottish Government commissioned uh, the report uh, conducted by uh, Ralph Roberts uh, as part of a commitment to the reintroduction of consultant-led maternity services at Dr Gray's in a safe and a sustainable way, um, and that is really important. Uh, the report that has been published is a substantial report. It's very uh, thorough, and it is important that all of the recommendations in that report are considered extremely carefully. Uh, the government will meet again with NHS Grampian, with NHS Highland, uh, to look at practical uh, next steps. And core to that, of course, uh, will be listening to clinicians at Ragmore uh, in any further uh, discussions. Um, and the Health Secretary, I think, has already indicated, but if not, I will indicate that now, uh, is of course prepared uh, and it is important that he meets with clinicians at Ragmore. Uh, of course, there is the, the Mum campaigning uh, group who also have views on the recent review uh, and report, and that has to be listened to as well. Uh, I do not uh, at all underplay the seriousness of this, nor uh, do I deny or challenge in any way how important it is uh, to all women to give birth as close to home as possible. Uh, and that's not just something that is desirable. There are many good clinical reasons uh, for that as well, uh, and also good support reasons for that. But the most important thing, uh, and I think it is acknowledged and, and underpins the questions that are being asked here as well. The most important things, thing here, uh, because there have been experiences in the past uh, that, that drive some of this, the most important thing is that maternity services are safe for women uh, and for their babies. And that's the principle that will drive all of the decisions uh, that are arrived at. And those decisions will, of course, be informed uh, by all those who have opinions uh, or indeed clinical expertise to bring to bear. Douglas Ross. The First Minister is saying that the Health Secretary will now respond, but these clinicians wrote directly to him. Yeah. They kept that private because yeah. they wanted to put across their views and get his response. When that didn't happen, when the Health Secretary didn't reply to these frontline experts, they went public in the local papers. When they still didn't get a response, I'm raising it in First Minister's questions. It shouldn't have to come yeah. to the yeah. Chamber here in Parliament to get a response. Because this issue doesn't just affect mothers in Murray. Over the last 15 years of this government, the temporary or permanent closure of maternity units has reduced services in Inverclyde, Paisley, Skye, Caithness, Angus, Perth and Dunfries. It's unacceptable to force pregnant women into lengthy and distressing journeys. We've heard from Cara Williamson, who was transferred from Aberdeen to Kirkcaldy because of a lack of beds. She was told she wouldn't be allowed to go with her newborn twins as they were transferred to the neonatal unit at Nine Wells Hospital in Dundee 
and she would have to wait for a separate ambulance. All Cara wanted was to get closer to home to her family, but she was left alone hundreds of miles away. First Minister, shouldn't families in every part of Scotland deserve better than this? First Minister. Let me, let me say two, two things uh, in addition to what I've already said. Firstly, in, in terms of the letter uh, from clinicians, I'm uh, certainly more than willing to uh, look into the, the reply or uh, why a reply uh, was not sent there. But the Health Secretary has said publicly, uh, I believe, that he uh, is going to meet with Rigmore clinicians. And it is inconceivable that decisions would be reached around this uh, without properly engaging clinicians on the front line, uh, who, of course, uh, have the responsibility to implement those decisions. And I'll give an assurance to those clinicians and, uh, indeed, to the populations affected here that that will absolutely happen. Um, in terms of the, the more a substantive issue here and it's one as I don't need to remind the chamber I was health secretary for a number of years and so many of these issues are issues uh, that I grappled with while uh, I was health secretary everybody wants uh, and this is the starting point every woman to be able to give birth as close to home as possible but often there are challenges and they are safety and sustainability challenges associated with that and we have to consider these issues carefully. Uh, so, for example, in some of the smaller units in our, countries, uh, our country, sometimes the issue is the small number of births mean that it is not possible to have the specialisms to support some of the, the complexity of care that is required. There have also been, uh, over these years, some recruitment challenges in some of these units that have added to these challenges. Uh, it would be completely wrong and irresponsible for a government or clinicians on the front line uh, not to have regard to these very serious issues as we try to strike the right balance between quality specialist care and care as close to home as possible. Uh, that's a balance that we have to, to grapple with in many uh, aspects of NHS care, but it's particularly important here when we're talking about the safety of pregnant uh, mothers and their babies. So these are really difficult issues. Uh, I understand, absolutely understand the views of families uh, and women giving birth, but it is so important that we get these decisions right. And I absolutely uh, acknowledge that in getting these decisions right, the views of frontline clinicians uh, are essential. Uh, we've also, just my last point here, uh, given commitments to continued investment in Ragmore um, as we take uh, these options and any recommendations forward. Uh, so the Health Secretary uh, will engage directly with clinicians, as is uh, right and proper, and we will con continue to treat all of these matters with the utmost seriousness. Douglas Ross. The First Minister mentions the small number of, of babies born in, in some of our smaller hospitals. That's because they're being downgraded. We've seen an 80% reduction of babies being born in Murray because of decisions taken by the local health board and the Scottish Government. Uh, and the First Minister said the Health Secretary will fully engage with clinicians in NHS Highland. That should have happened by now. I'm raising this today because they are at the end of their tether yeah. trying to get a response. And they're worried if he's really going to listen, because I go back to the quote from the 7th of December, the Health Secretary stood in this chamber and said he absolutely believed that there is capacity in place to deal with the additional women who may have to go to Ragmore. It doesn't sound like he's open to listening to the clinicians when he's already made up his mind. It is fine. Another woman we spoke to was Billy Cowie, and she described her experiences. Late in her pregnancy, over Christmas, she had to uh, make the the journey of over 60 miles from her home to hospital in Aberdeen. She described these journeys as, uh, as awful late in her pregnancy. Over the Christmas break, she was admitted to hospital repeatedly, each time forced to make that same journey. 
It's 2022. Nobody anywhere in Scotland should have to go through that, let alone repeatedly. The First Minister was elected on a manifesto that promised to restore a consultant-led maternity unit at Dr Gray's Hospital in Elgin. Will she keep that promise? And will she make a commitment that there will be no further downgrades to maternity units anywhere in Scotland? First Minister. The manifesto commitment stands, but it is important in relation to all services that we deliver these commitments in a way that is safe and sustainable. And that could scarcely be more important than in the issue we're talking about right now. Now, I appreciate that while I talk, and indeed Douglas Ross has talked about a number of different maternity units, the issues of distance are much more acute in the area he represents than they will be in other parts of Scotland. Uh, but, uh, and I absolutely uh, do not deny the experiences or the views or the wishes of the, the mothers uh, that have been quoted in the chamber today. I absolutely understand that. But uh, likewise, I have spoken to, and I know there are uh, some women who, uh, and Jackie Raley is in the chamber right now, we've had these discussions around the Vale of Leaven and in Verclyde in the past, there are some women uh, who choose to go to bigger uh, centres. So these are issues uh, that are difficult. Uh, we have to strike the right balance between local access uh, and safety uh, and specialism, particularly for cases of more complex care. Um, and we need to do that carefully and we need to do that taking account of the views of clinicians. Um, and I think, to repeat the point I made earlier on about investment in uh, Rigmore, if that is necessary, that's an important part uh, of uh, that commitment. Uh, so we will continue to take uh, these issues forward carefully, listening to uh, mothers uh, who have given birth, to mothers who will give birth in the future, uh, to clinicians delivering these uh, services to get to the best balance uh, that does ensure local access and avoids the need for uh, travelling long distances, but makes sure that our maternity services are rooted in safety as the absolute guiding principle for pregnant women and for their children. Question number two, Anna Sarwar. Officer, on Holocaust Memorial Day, we remember the millions of Jews who lost their life to prejudice and hate and all victims of genocide. We can't be complacent. There can be no hierarchy of prejudice. We can't pick and choose hate against one is hate against all. Officer, the pandemic has had a devastating impact and nowhere has that devastation been felt more than in our social care sector. Less than 1% of our population live in a care home yet they account for a third of all COVID deaths. Today, a report from Audit Scotland makes clear, and I quote, that the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated the long-standing challenges facing the social care sector, and it goes on to state that the service is in near crisis and that a lack of action now presents a serious risk to the delivery of care services for individuals. So what urgent action is the government taking now to address these challenges? First Minister. I, I welcome the report from Audit Scotland uh, today and uh, in many respects I don't think though it uh, tells us anything that we all haven't been aware of. Uh, there is an urgent need uh, for reform of our social care uh, services and that is what we are taking forward uh, through the proposals for the National Care uh, Service. Uh, but in the meantime and before I move on from that of course it is important to recognise that the findings of the Audit Scotland report published today largely are in line with the independent review of adult social care that Derek Feely uh, led from us. And indeed, that is why uh, we are moving uh, to establish a national care service by the end of this parliament. Uh, but of course, uh, in the meantime, uh, we are increasing investment in social care. We are increasing the pay of those who work 
in social care because recruitment and retention uh, and the valuing of the social care workforce is an important part uh, of what we need to do. Um, and that work will continue as we continue to take forward the plans for the National Care Service over uh, the course of the next few years. Uh, plans, of course, that everybody across Parliament will have the opportunity to contribute to. Anna Sarwar. The report also states that regardless of what happens with reform, some things cannot wait. We had a staffing crisis even before the pandemic, and now services are reporting they do not have the staff they need. 60% of housing support services, 59% of care at home services, 55% of care homes for older people not having the staff they need. This is a stark report that makes clear a lack of action now presents serious risks. Social care staff, according to Audit Scotland, and again I quote, are under immense pressure, are not adequately valued, engaged or rewarded for their vitally important role. Does the First Minister accept that we need an urgent, credible workforce plan and that a 48% pay increase simply won't cut it? So will she back our plan for an immediate increase to £12 an hour for care workers, rising to £15? First Minister. Well, firstly, we are taking action now um, as we progress the plans for the National Care Service. Uh, we have a commitment uh, to increase public investment in social care by 25% over uh, the Parliament, uh, and we have started on uh, that journey. Uh, we are also taking steps, have taken steps, to increase the pay of those in the adult social care uh, workforce. Now, Anna Sarwar, um, I think uh, in referring to 48 uh, pence, misrepresents the, the scale of that. So it represents that's 48 pence an hour, um, and actually the increase, uh, the increase is 12.9% uh, in compared to March 2021 uh, as the first step the first step to increasing substantially pay in the adult uh, social care workforce so an increase of 12.9% is actually uh, what we have already delivered. Does that go far enough? No, uh, and we have said uh, that we want it to go further. Uh, interestingly, though, it is uh, more uh, than the part of the UK uh, where Labour is uh, currently uh, in office, which, uh, of course, pay the real uh, living wage. So we recognise the need for action immediately. We are taking action immediately. We are also working with partners to attract more people into the sector. We launched in November last year a national marketing campaign uh, to attract more people, to recruit more people into the sector. As I hope Anna Sarwar would acknowledge, there are real pressures on recruitment across health and social care, indeed across the wider economy, because of the Brexit impact and the ending of free movement, and that is a significant challenge. Uh, but we will continue to make the investments uh, that attract people into that sector, to invest more in that sector uh, as we take forward that longer-term reform of a national care service. Anna Sarwar. The SNP has been government for 15 years. There is no one else to blame. A social care sector neglected before the pandemic failed during the pandemic. A workforce ignored, overstretched and undervalued. Those in need of care at home neglected and struggling to cope. Unpaid carers, disproportionately women, carrying the burden of this government's failures. We have been calling for a national care service for over a decade but it can't now be used as a government slogan to delay action until 2026. Carers and those who need the care can't wait another four years. There are things you can do right now. So will the First Minister take the burden off family carers by restarting respite services, pause commissioning to allow focus on the delivery of social care, 
end non-residential chair charges now and finally reward our frontline heroes with a pay increase they deserve. First Minister. Presiding officer, I think those listening to my first answer to Anna Sarwar would not have heard me blame anybody. They would have heard me talk about the things this government is doing, building on the action this government has taken in years gone by. Uh, but I can allow this moment to pass without reminding Anna Sarwar that, yes, uh, we have been in office in national government uh, in this parliament for 15 uh, years. For much of that, in, for example, Glasgow City Council, Labour were in administration denying female workers the equal pay to which they were entitled. And it took, it took an SNP administration in that council to deliver equal pay to women workers across Glasgow. So forgive me, presiding officer, if I'm not prepared to take lectures on that point from the leader of the Scottish Labour Party. Uh, we will, of course, continue to increase uh, the pay of adult social care workers. We have already taken the step I have spoken about. Uh, just this month, in, in terms of unpaid carers, we've announced additional investment uh, to help them uh, with respite, for example. And we will take forward uh, the plans to deliver that national care service, that reform that I hope future generations will look back on uh, with as much significance as this generation uh, looks back on the establishment of the National Health Service. So we will go on with doing the hard work uh, of supporting those in adult social care who do such a sterling job uh, on behalf of all of us. And let me also take the opportunity today to thank them for what they do. I'll now take some constituency and general supplementaries and I call Eleanor Whittam. a more compassionate and dignified social security system in Scotland. Can the First Minister outline the improvements this new benefit will deliver for the people across Scotland? First Minister. Well, I'm absolutely delighted that the adult disability payment regulations were passed uh, and passed unanimously this morning. Um, starting in March and being phased in ahead of national rollout in August, uh, this will be the 12th benefit uh, that we will deliver uh, and indeed the most complex uh, to date. It's a major milestone for our social security system and will mean a very, very different approach from the current adversarial DWP process. It will put an end to the anxiety of undignified physical and mental assessments and an end to private sector involvement will also end uh, the stressful cycle of unnecessary reassessments. Uh, starting from a position of trust, adult disability payment will provide disabled people with a compassionate system designed around what they have told us is important and crucially it will be rooted in our values of dignity, fairness and respect. Jamie Green. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Uh, North Ayrshire is one of five areas shortlisted uh, for a new prototype fusion power facility through the UK STEP programme. It really has the potential to generate a huge chunk of zero carbon energy, uh, which is much needed without the dangerous waste that is so often cited in this chamber, but more importantly, generate up to 3,500 jobs, much needed jobs for the local area. Given that it ticks so many of the First Minister's own economic, energy and climate ambitions, will she support North Ayrshire's bid? And if so, what will the Scottish Government do to support that bid? 
First Minister. Uh, we'll continue to discuss with North Ayrshire Council and other councils uh, their ambitions across a whole range of areas, uh, including this one. This is very, very early uh, stage technology. Uh, my concerns about nuclear power, not just the waste that is generated from uh, current nuclear technology, uh, but also the real doubts about value for uh, money are well known. Uh, so we'll discuss with councils any ambitions they have, but in the meantime, uh, we'll continue to invest uh, in renewable energy, where Scotland has vast potential to support our transition to net zero. Pauline McNeill. Thank you. After the first Glasgow School of Art fire in 2014, the report noted that the legacy ventilation system was a major contributor to the rapid spread of the fire. And the report released this week into the 2018 fire noted that construction layout and high fire loading allowed the fire to spread unchecked in all directions, leading to 50% of the building being well alight within 38 minutes of the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service arrival. But the Arscale management had claimed that their approach to the protection of the building was gold standard, but we find that the fire alarm did not work. Does the First Minister agree that lessons appear not to have been learned from the original fire? And does she agree that we owe it to the arts community and the residents of Garnet Hill, devastated by two fires, locked out of their home for four months after the fire, that there should be third-party independent oversight of the management of the rebuild to ensure confidence is restored. First Minister. Well, firstly, can I take the opportunity uh, to thank the Scottish Fire and Rescue uh, Service for their work on an incredibly challenging and complex investigation. Uh, unfortunately, um, and I think we all feel frustration uh, at this, although it's not the fault of the Fire and Rescue Service, due to the extensive damage sustained at the site and physical evidence uh, destroyed in the fire, uh, the Fire and Rescue Service were unable to determine its likely origin and uh, cause. Um, but it is nevertheless really important, and I agree with Polly McNeill, uh, that wherever possible, uh, all lessons are learned because of the importance of the art school, the importance of the Macintosh building uh, to, to, to Glasgow, to Scotland, uh, to the arts and culture uh, community. So we will uh, obviously continue to consider how the Scottish Government can support uh, that uh, lessons learned exercise and support uh, the art school as they take forward plans for the future. Uh, of course, all higher education institutions must comply with terms uh, set out by the Scottish Funding uh, Councils and the principles of good governance set out in the Scottish Code of Good Higher Education uh, Governance. And we expect the highest standards of propriety from organisations which receive public funding. But I'll give uh, further consideration uh, to Pauline McNeill's suggestions and come back to her in due course. Jim Fairley. <clears throat> Thank you, President Officer. As the First Minister will be aware, energy company OVO, who have a major presence in my constituency, have announced that they intend to lose 1,700 jobs, including up to 700 in Perth. You may also be aware that myself and the Deputy First Minister in Perth, your North MP, Pete Wishart, met with CEO Adrian Letts last week. Unfortunately, the owner of the company, Stephen Fitzpatrick, refused my invitation to attend. The conclusion of that meeting left us all very concerned that compulsory redundancies will be forced in the workforce, which could result in vital skills being lost to the economy. So can the First Minister tell me if there is anything the Scottish Government can do to impress upon the company how damaging these losses will be to my constituents and to the wider economy? First Minister. 
Well, can I thank Jim Fairley for his question uh, and indeed for his efforts on behalf of his constituents. I know he's uh, joined in those efforts by Pete Wisher and indeed by uh, the Deputy First Minister. Um, obviously, we are really concerned uh, about the proposed job losses at Oval Energy. Uh, this is an anxious time for the staff who work there, uh, for their families, but it's also a really anxious time uh, given the importance of this company to the local area for, uh, for the wider community. The Business Minister spoke uh, with the CEO of Oval Retail uh, last Wednesday, uh, exploring and interrogating the rationale behind this decision. Um, Ovo advised that the voluntary redundancy programme had not been open for long and that they were speaking to staff and uh, the Unite Union. Uh, the Business Minister will continue to press Ovo on all relevant uh, points and uh, has asked that they remain in contact uh, with Scottish Enterprise to explore ways of mitigating uh, the impact on jobs. Uh, so we will do everything we possibly can, uh, if it is possible, to uh, seek a reversal of the decision or a mitigation of those decisions. Of course, we will uh, also do everything we can through PACE to support uh, those who might be affected by redundancy. But I would appeal to the company. Uh, indeed, uh, I would say it is an expectation uh, of the company that they do engage with local representatives with the Scottish Government uh, and make sure that uh, their decisions are fully transparent uh, to their workers and to the wider community. Megan Gallagher. Thank you, Presiding Officer. The Equality and Human Rights Commission wrote to the Cabinet Secretary for Social Justice, Local Government and Housing about the Gender Reform Act. They outlined the need to improve healthcare services for transgender people and potential consequences of self-identification, such as collection of data, participation in drug testing and sports, measures to protect barriers facing women and practices within the criminal justice system. Does the First Minister acknowledge the concerns raised by the EHRC? And which part of society does the First Minister believe will bear the brunt of these consequences? And how does she propose to mitigate those impacts if her government maintains its current plans? First Minister. Uh, well, I note the letter uh, that was received yesterday from the Equality and Human Rights uh, Commission. Uh, the other thing I note is that it actually represents a significant change in the position of the Equalities and Human Rights uh, Commission. It responded to both of the Scottish Government's previous uh, consultation in its response to the 2017 consultation. It said this, uh, the Gender Recognition Act 2004 is far removed from reflecting best practice and has a significant negative impact on the lived experience of uh, trans people. In the 2019 consultation on the draft bill, it said the Commission considers that a simplified system for obtaining legal recognition of gender would better support trans people to live their lives free from discrimination and supports the aims of the draft bill. Uh, obviously, it's for the Commission uh, to say uh, why uh, its position has changed, but I think it's important for me to narrate that it is a change in position. I'm also slightly concerned at uh, some of what uh, I consider doesn't accurately characterise the impact of the bill. Uh, what the bill seeks to do, uh, or will seek to do, is simplify an existing process. It doesn't confer any new rights on trans people, nor does it change any of the existing protections in the Equality Act. So it doesn't change uh, the current position on data collection or uh, the ability of sports organisations to take decisions, for example. So we will continue to engage uh, with a range of organisations. But let me stress again, this is a bill that is designed uh, to simplify an existing process to reduce the distress, uh, the trauma and the anxiety and often the stigmatisation uh, that trans people suffer in our society. Uh, and, of course, uh, the government will set out its plans for the timetabling of that legislation in due course. Maggie Chapman. 
Apologies, Presiding Officer. I want to come in for a later question. I've I unpressed my button for that. Thank you, Ms Chapman. Um, we'll move on to question three, and I call Alex Cole-Hamilton. Presiding Officer, on Holocaust Memorial Day, can I say on behalf of the Scottish Liberal Democrats that whilst the uh, actions in the murderous regime of the Nazis has passed out or is passing out of living memory, it haunts us still and we have a duty to remember and to pass on that knowledge to future generations and to work together to ensure that atrocity and genocide can never happen in this world. Uh, to ask the First Minister when the Cabinet will next meet. First Minister. Tuesday. Alex Cole-Hamilton. I'm very grateful for that reply. And as Sarwar has already pointed to the Audit Scotland report published today, which shows uh, the crisis in our care sector, um, needs, care needs not being met, poor pay and conditions, and a staffing workforce that has been hollowed out and cannot wait for action. There is also a frightening symmetry between that report and a report published yesterday by the Royal College of Nurses, who say that six out of ten in that profession are considering leaving it because they too feel that they can't provide adequate care to the people in their charge. This is really serious and retention is almost as important as recruitment because we need to stop them leaving. That's why we've called for burnout measures. But we also need to listen to them too and that expertise is not being heard. They are not felt listened to. So can I offer a suggestion and ask of the First Minister, um, will she possibly instruct a staff, an NHS and care staff assembly modelled on the citizens' assemblies that we both support so we can close that important gap? First Minister. I, I will obviously consider any uh, proposals made in the Chamber, but we're getting on with the job now uh, of supporting uh, the NHS and indeed social care workforce. Um, obviously, Alec Cole-Hamilton will have heard my responses to Anna Sarwar uh, about our long-term reform uh, plans, but also the action we are taking now uh, to invest in adult social care and uh, to increase the pay of those who work in it and to support them uh, in a wider sense. Uh, let me turn, though, to the issue of uh, the Royal College of Nursing uh, report. Uh, of course, this has been a torrid time uh, for nurses and others working at the front line of our National Health Service. Uh, but nursing and midwifery staffing right now is at a record high in NHS Scotland. It's up by almost uh, 7,500 uh, since this government took uh, office. Uh, and that's staff in post. So none of uh, these numbers are uh, vacant. Uh, we have also uh, announced staff expansion in the last year alone uh, to create nearly 5,000 extra nursing and midwifery posts, more than half of those are already filled. So we are taking action now to increase those working in the National Health Service to support those who are already working in the National Health Service, backed, of course, by record funding. So yes, of course, I'll consider uh, a proposition for further discussion about how we, we, we do that in the longer term. But what's more important is the action we are taking now, and that's what we'll continue to focus on. Question number four, Gillian Martin. Thank you, President Officer. To ask the First Minister what the Scottish Government's response is to the findings of a recent report by the Virtual Trials National Project Board, which states that specialist online courts should be set up to deal with de domestic abuse cases. First Minister. We welcome Sheriff Principal Pyle's report and support the recommendation, which could deliver significant benefits for victims by reducing the traumatising impact of the court environment. 
Um, I recognise, too, the potential for the proposal to mitigate the impact of the pandemic and court delays, which is clearly to be welcomed uh, for this category of uh, vulnerable victims in particular. Uh, while the court programme is, of course, a matter for the Lord President, uh, I hope to see these courts utilised more widely as an element of the court's recovery programme. Uh, and we will be happy to consider uh, the possibility of future primary legislation to support the proposal in due course, subject uh, to consultation and including further discussions with victim support organisations. Julian Martin. Thank the First Minister for that response. Victims of domestic abuse have for many years said that given the evidence in front of the person who have abused them has been highly re-traumatising, as the First Minister just said. So I'm, I'm pleased to hear that the report has been viewed po positively by the Scottish Government. The model suggested that the report should be it would be dedicated to virtual domestic abuse trial courts in each, each sheriff, sheriffdom. Given that we currently have around 33,000 summary trials outstanding, these dedicated courts would ease pressure on the court system, as been said, but they would require additional sheriffs, sheriff clerks, prosecutors and defence agents, and all of them will have to be trauma-informed. Can the First Minister say what has been done to ensure the development of trauma-informed practices and procedures for everyone working in, in justice, regardless of the type of case? And should this virtual model work for domestic abuse cases, might there be the flexibility for it to be extended to other types of cases where victims have suffered extreme trauma, or indeed where geography or victim mobility is an issue? First Minister. These are all really important points. Um, on the specific issue of trauma-informed uh, practice, so the, the work of the Victims Task Force, uh, which of course is informed by uh, the voices and experiences of victims and survivors, uh, we recognise the impacts of trauma on those giving evidence in court and have committed to developing a trauma-informed and trauma-responsive workforce within the justice system. Uh, our programme for government commits to a new framework uh, specific to justice to give staff the knowledge and skills to understand and adopt a trauma-informed approach, and that's been taken forward by NHS Education Scotland with direct input from victims. Current legislation allows the virtual trial model to be used in any category of case. Um, and while, as I said a moment ago, the court programme is a matter for the Lord President, it is the case that the model does have the potential to benefit a range of victims and witnesses in the justice system. Maggie Chapman. Thank you, Presiding Officer. It's clear that emergency legislation and this uh, trial project board gives us real opportunities for changing things and, and doing things differently in the future. One issue that has been raised on this issue is how child contact proceedings can be used by perpetrators as a form of control and ongoing abuse. Does the First Minister agree that online courts could play a role in securing justice and safety for vulnerable women and children and not uh, allow... Uh, uh, perpetrators to abuse child contact proceedings? First Minister. Um, yes, I do, in principle, both uh, acknowledge the reality of that uh, and also agree uh, that this model uh, could uh, offer at least a, a partial solution. So it's uh, another reason why it is important, I think, uh, to treat this very seriously. Of course, in, in terms of uh, children in the criminal justice system, uh, we are uh, also developing the Barna House uh, model, which is also really important in terms of trauma-informed practice. Um, what I would agree absolutely with Maggie Chapman, and it's a more general point, is that we should uh, none of us wanted uh, to live through a global pandemic, but we should open our minds uh, to doing things differently as we come out of it uh, compared to how we did them going into it. Uh, there are some things we've had to do by necessity because of the pandemic uh, that I think we would all reflect perhaps uh, are better ways of doing things. And this is one area where that may absolutely be the case. Question number five, Stephen Kerr. Thank you, President Officer. To ask the First Minister what steps the Scottish Government is taking to encourage rail travel in Scotland. First Minister. 
Uh, we have continued to invest in Scotland's railway and support operators uh, throughout the pandemic. Uh, we have allocated uh, a record uh, £4.85 billion to maintain and enhance the railway in the current control period and, of course, supported our rail franchises with around £1 billion, including over £450 million of additional funding via the Emergency Measures Agreement. Uh, we are committed to ensuring that rail fares are affordable and ScotRail fares are still, on average, 20 per cent cheaper uh, than those in the rest of the UK. Uh, work is also well underway, uh, and I know Stephen Kerr will particularly welcome this, uh, to provide passenger services within the public sector under Scottish Government control uh, from April. And I know he, like me, uh, will be very much looking forward to that transition. <laughs> Stephen Kerr. Uh, in, indeed, indeed. In a few days' time, Nicholas Sturgeon and her government become fully responsible for the operation and performance of ScotRail. If you were travelling from Falkirk to Edinburgh and back every day of the working week, it costs you £72.50 a week. If you're travelling from Falkirk to Glasgow and back every day of the working week, it costs you £85.50. These fares are outrageous. And the RMT union has called out her government for a 38% increase in fares since 2012. So what is the First Minister's plan to reduce fares and get more people out of their cars and onto trains? First Minister. Well, we'll continue. Uh, uh, I'm not sure Stephen Kerr's uh, fondness for the RMT will be reciprocated, but that is a matter <laughs> entirely for them. <laughs> we will continue. This is a serious, serious issue, Presiding Officer. Um, we will continue to make the investments in our railway to improve passenger services, uh, because it is really important for the country's connectivity uh, that we do have good quality railway services. Uh, and I believe uh, bringing the railway into public ownership will help us uh, with that. Yes, uh, that will be under uh, Scottish Government control uh, from later uh, this year. Uh, I have not uh, noticed, of course, uh, before now that the Scottish Government has escaped responsibility or accountability uh, for these matters, but we will uh, perhaps have uh, more ability to shape things in future. Uh, and part of a, a high-quality railway is affordable fares. Uh, we need the investment in our railway, and uh, I think less of the investment uh, in the railways in Scotland comes from passengers through fares than is the case in other parts of the UK. More of it comes from uh, government subsidy. Uh, but, of course, uh, we want fares to be affordable uh, and as affordable as possible. But I come back to the point I made uh, earlier on. Uh, on average, uh, rail fares in Scotland uh, are 20 per cent cheaper than they are uh, in the rest of the UK, where, if memory serves me correctly, Stephen Kerr's uh, party is in government. Cocab Stewart. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Uh, does the FM share my view that if the Scottish Conservative benches sincerely want to support uh, Scotland's railway network, uh, its passengers and employees, that they should lobby their colleagues in the UK Government for full devolution of Scotland's railway to this Parliament? First Minister. I think we've probably... Uh, <laughs> I think we've probably seen in recent weeks uh, that the Tories uh, at UK level don't pay that much attention to what their Scottish uh, Tory colleagues uh, say. But the important point is uh, that we have long called for these powers to be devolved, uh, and there's a serious reason for that. If the whole rail system in Scotland, including Network Rail, is fully accountable to this government and to this parliament, then we will be better able to provide the railway services that people in Scotland want and expect. Uh, so anyone with a genuine interest 
a genuine interest in these matters in ensuring the future prosperity of our railway should get behind us on this and demand the devolution uh, of these full powers to this Parliament. Question number six, Jackie Bailey. To ask the First Minister how much has been spent on private sector contracts in the preparation of the proposed National Care Service. First Minister. Well, I'd refer Jackie Bailey to the Public Contracts Scotland website where the details she has asked for uh, are published. It's entirely appropriate for the government to procure specialist services to support the development of our national care service proposals. Uh, we must ensure robust review of the evidence and future principles for outcome-focused, uh, person-centred uh, design to ensure success. All contracts awarded by the Scottish Government are subject to robust contract management and adhere to the principles of transparency. Any outputs procured in relation to the National Care Service will be published to make uh, sure that they are publicly available. Jackie Bailey. Can I thank the First Minister for her response and can I also welcome her support for Labour's proposals for a National Care Service, which of course she rejected 10 years ago, but I always welcome late converts. But how disappointing that so far £700,000 has been outsourced to big private sector consultancy firms to develop the National Care Service. KPMG alone awarded a contract of half a million pounds to develop the business case. And now I discover that the private sector is lining up to benefit from a multi-million pound contract for IT and data services for the National Care Service. Why is this happening at a time when KPMG are not bidding for UK government contracts because these have been suspended pending investigation? Why is the First Minister using private sector consultancies when there is a wealth of expertise in the social care sector that understands what needs to be done? And finally, why can the First Minister find millions of pounds for private sector contracts, but hard-working social care workers have to settle for a measly 48 pence pay rise? First Minister. Well, where it makes sense to use external expertise uh, to fee up civil servants uh, to focus on the, the policy development and implementation, we will do that as other governments do that too. Let me, let me give uh, one example uh, of the kind of contracts that Jackie Bailey is talking about, a contract to analyse the consultation responses. It's routine for analysis of consultation responses to be undertaken independently. Uh, this work is often put out an open fair procurement process and actually, that very independence is normally considered a good thing. And I can only imagine the howls of bias we would hear from Jackie Bailey had we decided to analyse the consultation responses internally instead of having it done independently. But Jackie Bailey talked about changes of heart. So I, I want to just briefly come on to that point, because Jackie Bailey now seems to think that government should always do work like this itself. But as a minister, she didn't have that view. Uh, when Community Scotland was being set up, uh, the Labour Social Justice Minister at the time told this Parliament uh, that external consultants were part of the tens of thousands of pounds of cost to establish that. Uh, the Minister responsible back then, it was presiding officer, in case you haven't guessed it by now, one Jackie Bailey. <laughs> Willie Rennie. The, the First Minister is making the same mistake that our predecessor Alex Salmon did with the formation of the National Police Service, with the formation of the National Care Service. Doesn't she realise that wasting millions of pounds of taxpayers' money on a National Care Service, a big bang reorganisation, is actually disrespect to the workers 
who deserve a decent pay rise now. She should be investing in the care service rather than creating this national care service monolith that's not going to help people right now. First Minister. Do you know, when I listened to Willie Rennie there, I can only conclude that if this parliament had existed and he'd been in it back in the days of the establishment of the National Health Service, he would have opposed it. Uh, because the same arguments uh, are ones that no doubt he would have used then. The opportunity now uh, to create a national care service to mirror the National Health Service is one that I think we should seize and grasp with both hands. It's vital that we get it right and all members uh, of this parliament will have the opportunity to contribute to that. But can I suggest Willie Rennie should listen to more people around the country about what they want to see in the future uh, of a care service um, and reflect on that. And of course, in the meantime, we will get on with increasing investment in social care and also increasing the pay uh, of those who do such a fantastic job working in it. Thank you. That concludes First Minister's questions.